Let's be praying for the ashes. Um, we need 244 more with six wickets in hand. It's looking a bit ominous. Um, so um, I did wonder about having a time of prayer, but I think that might be pushing it somewhat. Um, I'm a bit of a... Nicola calls herself a cricket widow sometimes because I can be lost for days in the ashes. Um, brilliant. Well, we're going to carry on our series um, in a inside out and um, as you'll see our topic for today is inner joy and um, I think as I've reflected on what I'm written today it feels so important this whole kind of topic of inner joy this whole inner life you know we've talked about lots of things around what's going on inside because what's going on all around is um, it's just really really difficult I don't know about you there's just all the news I mean Riots in Paris. I mean, what's that about? It's just everything seems just very difficult, very challenging. And so, um, yeah, inner joy. And is this mic a bit echoey or is it just me? No? Or it's just me. Right. Um, so, 247 years ago, the Declaration of Independence was signed. These are the founding documents on which modern America is built. And in this declaration, we read this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men were created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, this is the opening couple of sentences from a website I came across called pursuitofhappiness.org. And it said this, the pursuit of happiness is an essential human right. Both Confucius and Socrates insisted that well-being and personal growth were a major purpose of life and a central goal of education. So what is happiness? Um, well, there's kind of two elements of happiness that the world would tell us. One is um, the current experience of the feeling of an emotion such as pleasure or joy. So that's kind of one definition of happiness and the second is an appraisal of life satisfaction such as the quality of life so in a way when you think about this pursuit of happiness we think of it from that moment by moment feelings of happiness and joy and then we think of this kind of overarching satisfaction when you sit back and you think oh great my life is brilliant I feel really happy about my life and and this is the kind of guiding principles. This is the stuff that people are chasing after. And psychologists Michael Argyle and Peter Hills at Oxford University created something called the Happiness Questionnaire. Did you ever come across this? I, I had a look at it last night. This is 29 questions that you score between one and six. And at the end, you kind of work out how happy you are by this number that's produced at the end of it. Um, and I thought I'd read you some of the questions. I don't feel particularly pleased with the way I am. I feel that life is very rewarding. I have very warm feelings towards almost everyone. Okay, I rarely wake up feeling rested. I am not particularly optimistic about the future. Life is good. I am well satisfied about everything in my life. I don't think I look attractive. And they suggest that you basically periodically do this, you know. So I, mean, I don't know whether you plot a graph over your life of how happy you are based on the number this 29 questions produces, but that's what they encourage you to do. 
And um, what I find fascinating about these 29 questions is that the majority start with I, or at the very least, I is at the very center of the question. And this ideology of pursuing happiness, born in, I think, the Declaration of Independence, has now infiltrated Western society, Western culture. So much of our culture, even our economy, is driven by this individualism and the individual's pursuit of happiness, both in the form of experiences, you know, what can I do today that will make me feel happy, um, or that constant drive for this life satisfaction that, you know, at the end of our life, we'll look back and we'll have this happy, glorious, satisfied life, whatever that means in today's society. You know, so much is driven, so much of society is driven by this pursuit of happiness. But it sometimes feels like this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Do you know what I mean? You kind of go after it, that, that whole thing of like, you can never find the end of the rainbow, well, you can't be because it doesn't actually exist, really. Um, we go after it, but it doesn't exist. And it seems that the more Western culture kind of talks about this pursuit of happiness as being the goal of life, you know, whether that be the momentary happiness or this life satisfaction, just looking around the world and even our local culture, it seems more and more people are, are further away from that goal of happiness because of all that's going on around them. So is this drive of personal happiness all bad? Well, of course not. There's, there's nothing problematic with this concept and this idea and this desire to be happy. But my question for today and my, my kind of talk for today is suggesting this, that actually we don't, we don't pursue happiness as our goal that actually joy, inner joy, inner happiness, is actually a byproduct of a life well lived. Let me read you what I think is one of the most contradictory verses in the Bible. You don't often hear somebody on the stage say that, do you? But I think it is. Um, Hebrews 12.25 says this, For the joy set before him, that's Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Have you read that and just actually thought about what that says? You know, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You know, and for many people, they might interchange happiness and joy. So you could say for the happiness set before him, for the happiness set before Jesus, he endured the cross. You know, this most horrendous of deaths, you know, torture, ridicule, isolation, For the joy set before him, he endured all of that. Do you not find that a paradox? Find that such a contradiction? Or is it? Or is it? How can Jesus be joyous in the most difficult of circumstances? And that is our question for today. How can we have inner joy? Let me read you Philippians 1. I love Philippians. It's such an amazing letter. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, this is the Apostle Paul writing, so that in the um, kind of, a lot of the New Testament was written by Paul or other apostles who really were the pioneers of the early church. Jesus commissioned them to go and extend his kingdom and to plant and to grow 
his church. So this is the Apostle Paul, and he writes this. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether in life or death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on, my, on account of me. Amazing passage of scripture. You know, in this passage in Philippians 1, we once again seemingly see this position of contradiction. The Apostle Paul is in chains. He is in prison. So he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi from prison. You know, his freedom has been taken from him. And yet he rejoices. In fact, the letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul uses the Greek words for joy and rejoicing 16 times in 104 verses. And yet he is in chains. Some would describe Philippians as the most joyous book in the whole of the Bible. And yet it is written from a prison cell. How did Paul have such inner joy? How in that circumstance, in the most horrible and difficult of circumstances, because prison was not like prison today. You know, we're talking about pretty horrible conditions. How did he have such inner joy? I think in the world we live in, in 2023, it's a good question to ask. How can we learn from Paul to have such inner joy? So I want to suggest three things that Paul did, and we can see in this passage, that I think will help us if we could emulate that in our lives to have the inner joy like Paul. So firstly, we need to look at Paul's focus. Then we need to look at Paul's perspective. And then we need to look at Paul's hope. So focus, perspective, and hope. So firstly, who did Paul fix his focus upon? Well, the short answer is Jesus. You know, it's like the answer to all questions, isn't it? What, 
Jesus. He fixed his eyes on Jesus. In fact, Paul says he is in chains because of Jesus. Again, a slight contradiction, isn't it? But, but more than that, he's joyous because being in chains has in fact emboldened the church to live out their faith with even more in Jesus. The writer to the Hebrews in the build-up to the verse about Jesus' joy and the cross writes this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. And then it goes on, for the joy set before him. We must fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. You know, what we see in Paul's life is some, someone who lived this out. You know, Paul fixes his eyes on Jesus, and no matter where Jesus leads him, even into prison, he chooses to rejoice and never take his eyes off Jesus. And we start to see a pattern, don't we? You know, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. Paul is in, joy, in chains, and yet he rejoices. There's something about where we fix our eyes that helps us through the most difficult of circumstances to still have that inner joy, that ability to stay joyful even in horrible circumstances. You know, we know that Jesus never took his eyes off the Father. He only ever did what he saw the Father doing. Paul never took his eyes off Jesus. So the start of inner joy is a relationship with Jesus. We can't have inner joy with, without a personal relationship with Jesus. We can't fully receive inner joy if we don't walk closely with Jesus every day of our life. You see, we have to fix our eyes on something or someone. And if not Jesus, who or what? And I'm just aware you might be sat here, and I, I don't know kind of where you are in terms of your relationship with Jesus. You know, maybe you don't have a relationship with him. Maybe you have a really, really deep relationship with him, or maybe you're somewhere in between. And we can sometimes think, well, actually, my life's pretty good. My life's all right, you know. It's, um, I feel generally pretty happy and satisfied. And so, you know, why, why is this important? And I think I want to say to you that the joy that we're talking about today is far greater than the superficial joy that the world goes after. It's a depth, it's an inner joy that just kind of, it's hard to explain. It's hard to describe it until you've experienced it. It sustains us. It holds us steady. It keeps our head above water in the most difficult of times. It's a beautiful, wonderful joy. But we can't receive it if we don't know Jesus. So let's be honest, where do you fix your gaze? Where do you fix your eyes? Maybe it's family or children. You know, I don't know. Maybe you kind of, that's where you fix your gaze. That's where your attention goes. That's your priority in life and where you find your most joy and happiness. Maybe it's work, career, success. You know, you're just like, right, I'll feel satisfied. I'll feel happy if I get that promotion, if I earn that extra bit of money, if I kind of move to that new kind of company or, you know, I don't know what it is. You know, what... Maybe it's work, maybe it's career, maybe it's success that you fix your eyes upon. Maybe it is the gen just the pursuing happiness. 
You know, maybe that is your focus. You know, you get up each day and think, right, how can I feel happy today? How can I go and feel more satisfied in life? And maybe that is what drives you. Maybe it's wealth. Or maybe you fix your eyes on the negatives, you know, which is sometimes, I think, in the world in which we live is possibly more a reality in the moment. You know, maybe it's the lack of money in a cost of living crisis. We just get up and we just focus on the lack of money. And it's like, oh, goodness, where, how am I going to pay my bills? And it just consumes us with kind of worry. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe it's that sense of isolation, you know, not feeling like we're connected with people. And so we just focus on that loneliness all the time and it's difficult. Maybe it's a job you don't enjoy, or maybe a lack of a job, and you're just kind of like, oh, goodness, you know. And this consumes your focus. It consumes your thoughts. Maybe it's the fact that you actually don't feel happy, and you, you're just kind of fixed upon that. I just don't feel happy. I'm not sure I'm ever going to feel happy. You know, it just, it just consumes you. You know, whether it's the negatives or the positives, we will fix our eyes on something. It will be our focus if it's not Jesus. So how might we diagnose if our eyes are fixed on someone or something other than Jesus? What's our little diagnostic test for where our gaze is? Well, I'd say there's three questions that would be really good for us to ask on a regular basis. What do you think about the most? What do you think about the most or who do you think about the most? What goes into your diary first? And what do you spend your money on? Just take a moment to ask yourself those three questions. And be honest with yourselves. On average, there are 728 hours in a month. I know, I'm a bit of a nerd, I can't help it. I have to have some numbers in my talks. If you come to church every Sunday for the whole of that month, do you realize that your focus will only be on Jesus for 1% of your time? For 1% of your time. That's if you come every week. So if we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus, we need to cultivate a lifestyle of fixing our eyes on Jesus. So here are three answers slash practices about those questions that I just want to throw out there as a little bit of an encouragement to you all. What do you think about most? Well, we need to train our thinking. And I could go off on one about Romans and all of that, you know, renew our minds and all of those things. But I'm not. I'm just going to give you a few little pointers. Even a couple of minutes at the start of the day, committing it to Jesus and even a couple of minutes at the end of the day, thanking Jesus for the day, and maybe lifting up all the worries and burdens to him, that as a practice can change where you fix your eyes. Two minutes at the start of the day, two minutes at the end of the day, bookmarking your day with fixing your eyes and your gaze upon Jesus can make a massive difference. I mean, even just as a starting point, I would throw that out there. Why don't you try it this week? If you don't do, if that's not your practice, maybe it is. So I don't want to teach my granny to suck eggs, as the saying goes. But if it's not, try it. Try a couple of minutes, start of the day, a couple of minutes at the end of the day. 
quick reminder in your phone. Fix my eyes on Jesus. Fix my eyes on Jesus. And just see how your week goes. So that's the first one. Second one. Whoops. What goes into your diary first? Here's my encouragement to you. This has always been Nicola and I's practice. And it's served as well in the most difficult of times. Put Jesus and his church into your diary first. Whether that is Sunday services, whether that be life group, whether that be personal devotion, whether that be serving, whether that be taking retreat time and just to go for a walk on the beach and to think about Jesus, whatever that is, put it in your diary first. Because if you leave it to the last, there will never be time for it. Everything else will crash into your time and you'll take your gaze off Jesus and onto other things. So put Jesus and his church into your diary first. And thirdly, what do you spend your money on? I think we all need to give. Not just because, you know, ministry costs money, as we say. You know, if we're going to be a church family and do the things we want to do, we need people to give. But more than that, the habit of tithing, the habit of setting apart the first part of your income is absolutely crucial if you're going to fix your eyes on Jesus. Because if we do not give, if we do not set apart that, that take the habit, the practice of setting apart the first bit of our income, then we will put trust upon what we can earn. We'll put trust upon the work of our own hands above the provision of God. Because it all comes from him. This is the great misconception that the world kind of throws at us. All we have comes from God, our every breath. And if we don't give it back to him, just the part of it that he asks us to give, then we will fall into the trap of believing we can provide for ourselves, that we can manage our own sort of affairs, and we don't need him. It's why we bang on about giving, not just because we want to encourage you to give to the ministry of the church, but actually because it centers you on Jesus. It's why we encourage generosity, not just kind of a religious tithe, because we have to actually recognize that we need God in our lives, that we're not self-sustained. You know, if we don't give, two outcomes happen. We either worry because we don't have enough, or we transfix by our wealth, rather than fixing our gaze on Jesus. If we want inner joy, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. You'll be pleased to know the other two are shorter, um, just in case you're wondering whether we'll get home today. So if the first one is fix your eyes on Jesus, the second one is found in his perspective, in Paul's perspective. For to me, for to, me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That, you could talk on that for the whole day, couldn't you? If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far. 
but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boast in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. You know, fixing our eyes is the starting point of inner joy. It is our perspective on life that cements that joy into the very fabric of who we are, no matter what we might face. James 4, 14 to 15 says this, Why? You, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live here and do this or that. Paul understood something profoundly important to live in a full life of inner joy. Paul understood that this life, however many years we have, 70, 80, 90, however many set aside for us by God, it's only a heartbeat in eternity. It's like that for eternity, the years that we have on this earth, in this body. And Paul knew this. His focus, his gaze was on heaven, on eternity. He realized that this life, these years, is minuscule compared to the infinite time we'll have, either with Jesus because we know him or without Jesus because we never surrendered our life to him. Our life is a mist, here one minute gone, the next. And that isn't a depressing thought. Like so many in the world would think, oh, that's a depressing thought. Our life is here for a minute and gone the next. No, you see, it's crucial to inner joy. It's crucial. If we don't have an eternal perspective, we will live as if this mist is all we have. You know, we will strive, we will worry, we will hurry about trying to fit everything in. We'll covet, we'll hoard, because this is all the life we have and we have to make the most of it. You see, Paul was in prison. You know, he could have been thinking, if he had a mindset that wasn't heavenly, oh my goodness, while I'm in prison, I can't do all of these things that I want to do. But he didn't. He rejoiced because his focus was on heaven and on Jesus. He had a different perspective. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Wow, what a sentence. Well, a statement. Paul understood that this life is the hors d'oeuvre before the main course. Don't ever look at my spelling of hors d'oeuvre because it is not true. It, word didn't even recognize it. It was so badly spelt. Um, but anyway, I'll let you into a little secret there. You know, what lies beyond this life is better by far than what we experience now. That's the perspective we need to have if we're going to live with inner joy. It's so far removed from what this world has to say. So far removed. If I'm, going to go, if I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ because that's better by far. I want to be in that place of peace and joy that is unlimited. But do you know what, Paul says, I'll, I'll stay because I know it's better for you. I know it will bring about fruitful labor. I know God's kingdom will be extended. 
I'm going to stay. I believe God wants me to stay. That's what he's saying. What a perspective. Do you believe that it's better to be with Jesus by far? And if you believe that, then you'll fix your gaze and fix your focus upon fruitful labor. That's what Paul says. You know, if I'm here, I'm going to make my life count. I'm going to make sure my life is full of fruitful labor. If, if he can't be with Jesus in heaven, then he's going to build up the church and he's going to extend God's kingdom. That's what he's going to do. The writer to the Hebrews puts it like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Let us run. Paul was running with all of his might to do fruitful labor and to extend the kingdom of God and to exalt the name of Jesus. So how might we divine fruitful labor, just quickly? Well, I think that fruitful labor lasts for eternity. If you kind of want to know what fruitful labor looks in the kingdom of God, it's stuff we do that lasts for eternity. If it's in that whole kind of like eaten up by moths and all of that, if it falls into that category, then it's not fruitful labor. It, it might be what God wants us to do as a way of kind of filling our time on the earth, but it's not the fruitful labor. It's not the extending of the kingdom if that's all it is. It's not saying that work isn't good. It's not saying we shouldn't work hard and steward what we have. It's not saying that something that doesn't look like being a pastor of a church isn't fruitful labor. It's about our perspective. It's about our heart. It's what we take into it. So, you know, you can be a financial advisor and it can be fruitful labor. If our heavenly perspective, if we're trying to help people get free and make good choices with their money. Do you see what I mean? It, fruitful labor is a perspective. It's not just an activity. But if 1% of our life is all we do around fruitful labor, coming to church on a Sunday, we're robbing ourselves of 99% of our life that could be fruitful if it's not submitted to the Lord. Let me ask you another question then. When you look at your life, do you see fruitful labor that pleases Jesus and that will last for eternity? question not a simple answer actually okay I do need to come into land I'm aware of the time so finally but importantly Paul's inner joy came from a hope of eternity I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or death there it is again he had this perspective, whether in this life or whether in death in life to come, I want to exalt Christ. And that's the hope he had. I just love this verse. Firstly, the enthusiasm of Paul's hope. I eagerly expect and hope. You know, it was like there was, there was an excitement about this hope that he had. He's not just hoping, fingers crossed, you know, that things will be all right. No, Paul's hope is tangible, it's real, it's expectant. But secondly, it is linked to the exaltation of Christ.
He hopes, he hopes, he hopes. But he mostly hopes that his life will exalt Jesus. It's not about what he hopes to receive, but rather what he hopes to give back to Jesus. What a perspective. What a game changer. You know, sometimes the doctrine of eternity is reduced down to the idea that we have this ticket when we give our lives to Jesus. It's this little ticket we get that says, here's your room in heaven. You know, it's not one of those cards you get from like a hotel room. And you'll get to heaven, you'll be able to swipe the door and you'll be able to go into your room and it'll all be set out for you. And that's really what eternity is about. And we kind of endure this life. So we get this card and we go to heaven and that's it. That wasn't Paul's perspective. And that is not how we get inner joy. See, Paul's perspective was that, inner, that eternity starts today. It starts in this moment. It starts now. And Paul knew that whether in life or death, whether for eternity with Jesus in heaven or whether in this life, in this moment in prison, that that's eternity. Eternity starts now and he's going to live for eternity. And the very purpose of his existence is to exalt Jesus. So he's going to do it today or he's going to do it for all eternity with a crowd of witnesses. That's Paul's perspective. That's where he got in a joy from because he knew in prison that people were, were growing in their faith because they saw his confidence in the Lord and so they witnessed all the more and so he was rejoicing in that because he knew Christ was being glorified. It's a game changer. It changes everything about our faith. And actually it turns a lot of what even Western Christianity sometimes portrays. This is the real deal. If we want to understand how to live a life that glorifies Jesus, we look at the life of Paul. He's incredible. You see, hope is a verb. I had to check what a verb was, but I believe it's a doing word. And um, it's an active. We, we live out hope. It's not passive that we sit on a chair and we wait for something that's in the future. Hope starts now and we live it out. Of course, it will be fully realized when Christ returns or when we go to heaven. We know that there's more to come. But we know that hope starts today. And so Paul asks for sufficient courage to keep exalting Christ in all circumstances. Because he hopes beyond hope that when he gets to heaven, he'll have lived a life worthy of Christ. Amazing. He was running the race marked out for him. He was fixing his eyes on Jesus, even in the most darkest and difficult of circumstances. And yet he could still rejoice. That's inner joy. Okay, I am finishing. You know, in 2023, there seems to be an acute lack of joy. It might just be me, but it feels like there's an acute lack of joy. And so if we fix our eyes on the troubles all around us, and there are many that we could fix our eyes upon, we will be overcome with worry and concern. But we can have inner joy. It is available to all who believe in Jesus. And Paul has shown us how we can have it in our life. And like all things, 
even for those that have put their trust in Jesus already, it is fraught with distractions and challenges. We have an enemy who wants to rob us of inner joy. And he'll distract us and put challenges that stop us receiving it. But we need to do three things. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to have an eternal perspective and prioritize fruitful labor. And we need to live a hope-filled life that exalts Jesus both now and for all eternity. Just three small things. But if we do them, we'll know an inner joy like nothing we've ever experienced. Shall we pray? Holy Spirit, just come. Just come and inhabit those words. You know, certain bits that was I shared, certain scriptures that I read out will mean something to each of you. Because we're all on a different part of our journey. So Holy Spirit, would you just come and bring that to the forefront of our minds? Just come and bring it. Just come and help us to see where we can, we can maybe receive more inner joy. Where are the things we need to change and do differently in our lives? no quick fixes to inner joy I, you know, we could, I could lead at a ministry time the Holy Spirit could move powerfully and touch each of your lives in incredible ways in this moment but you know I don't think he wants to do that because actually that's part of that the whole idea of can there be a quick fix to the way I feel today and the reality is there is no quick fix. It's a life work. And so I think the best thing we can do in this moment is determine in our hearts and our minds what do we need to change? I suppose this is the root of discipleship, isn't it? That we might imitate Jesus or imitate Paul as he imitates Jesus. So what is it you need to change? Is it where your gaze is? Is it your diary? Is it your money? Are there other things, distractions? Do you need to give a little bit more of the 99% of your time over to Jesus? So I'm just going to give some space. We've got about five minutes. And you know, what we're going to do is we're just going to sit and we're going to reflect on that, those three questions. I think if we put those last three bits up, the last slide, I think it is. Just to look at that and just to spend some time personally with the Lord around those three things. And then we'll kind of come to an end. 
So if you're on the live stream, then I think we'll stop the live stream. But, or actually, no, we can just leave that on the slide, can't we? So we'll just leave that on this live stream slide so you guys can reflect 